is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, accordingly to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, his trust, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an an inheritance, having been destined according to the purposes of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. All right, well, let's jump in. Uh, back in 49... Back in 49, not 1949, mind you, just 49, uh, 1,972 years ago, that one, <laughs> the Apostle Paul set off on his second missionary journey, beginning in Jerusalem after the council had met to discuss Gentile circumcision and things of that nature. Uh, you can read about that in Acts 15. There should be an image here. Uh, Paul's second missionary journey. He made his way around Asia Minor. Uh, our message today is going to be a little less preachy and a little more teachy. Uh, it's an introduction to the rest of the text of Ephesians. It'll serve as kind of a, a foundation of sorts as we journey through this letter. Uh, and who knows? I might get a little preachy here and there. Uh, but for the most part, my aim is just to kind of lay a foundation for you today. Anyway, during this journey, Paul stopped in Corinth, which you can see there at the tip of the bottom of that middle island area, Corinth. He stopped in Corinth. He was there for about a year and a half uh, until the year 52. And while he was there, he met Priscilla and Aquila, the original power couple in the church. <laughs> Uh, Acts 18.18 18 says this, After staying there in Corinth for a considerable time, about a year and a half, uh, Paul said farewell to the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but first he himself went into the synagogue and had a discussion with the Jews. Verse 21, But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. So Ephesus was a very important city in the ancient Roman world, rivaled really only by Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. It's a very important place. And in the year 52, St. Paul, along with his young disciple Timothy, visited Ephesus, uh, where he taught about Jesus, planted a church, and left it in the care of its first pastors, Priscilla and Aquila. 
And this may seem like a minor detail as an aside here, but please take note of whose name is listed first. It's hers. Yeah? Not his. This little detail can be a very helpful corrective to some of the, way, the erroneous ways we have utilized later chapters in this same letter. Husbands, submit to your wives, right? Uh, again, that's a helpful corrective, and we'll come back to that some weeks later. Eventually, a man named Apollos showed up, and he taught with passion. He was, he was a very, I guess, charismatic speaker. Uh, and Priscilla and Aquila found him out and explained the way of Jesus to him more accurately. He was actually a disciple of John the Baptist. And Apollos, many scholars believe, is actually the person responsible for writing what we call today the book of Hebrews. Some people say that was Paul. Most scholars don't, don't agree with that. Uh, a lot of them actually think it was Apollos. Uh, he was an important fellow in the early church, to say the least. Uh, and he was led by these two new pastors in Ephesus. A couple of years later, on his third missionary journey, Paul made his way back to Ephesus to teach its people the way of Jesus. He did this daily in a rented out lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. The Hall of Tyrannus. Now, Ephesus was also the home of the Temple of Artemis. We got a picture of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of wild animals, the hunt, vegetation, and chastity and childbirth. Interesting combination there, huh? The Roman version of Artemis was called Diana, if that sounds familiar. She was a favorite among the rural residents of the Roman Empire. If Greek mythology had made its way around the world like Christianity had, more than likely Artemis would be the goddess that we Arkansans were into, right? She's like there with her bow and arrow and a deer and giving birth, right? So... <laughs> Many of, uh, sorry, uh, this, this Artemis, right? Many of the people who became believers in Ephesus uh, confessed and repented of their previous religious affiliations. Uh, many of them magic practitioners, right? They would gather up their books and burn them. Shortly after, a riot broke out. Big deal. Uh, because a silversmith named Demetrius... Demetrius, who made shrines of Artemis, gathered some local tradesmen and riled them up about uh, Paul and what he was saying. In Acts 19, we can read about this starting in verse 25. He said, he, this is what Demetrius said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And this is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty. That brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And a riot began. This temple, I think we have a picture of the temple as well. This temple of Artemis was massive. 
okay? It was as wide as a football field, quite a bit longer than a football field, and about 40 foot high, made entirely out of marble. No small feat, right? It's literally one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. <laughs> it's huge. This temple's importance is difficult to overstate uh, for this area, for these people in this time. And Paul is causing problems. His teaching has been disrupting both the religious and therefore the economic status quo of this region. Notice that connection. These men, their livelihoods falling into disrepute, caused an uproar. Yeah? They caused this uproar among the people under the facade of faithfulness to Artemis. They may really have been into Artemis, but what they were really concerned about was their wealth. Anyway, after all this settled down, Paul eventually departed Ephesus again. But in the year 57, five years later, after his first visit, he stopped by the nearby island of Miletus and made his final, final farewell to these people in Ephesus. As a quick aside, the Greek word for elder that we're going to read in this passage uh, is actually the word presbyteros, uh, which sounds familiar, right? Like Presbyterian. Uh, these were the presbyters, the presbytery, the leaders of local congregations, right? Uh, these elders in New Testament times would have been the equivalent of today of what we call pastors, right? Uh, these churches in these towns, it wasn't like it is now, right, where we have this big giant building that we gathered like a temple of Artemis. We did, they didn't have that. They met in homes. And in these individual homes, there was an elder or an elder couple that were the pastors of these home churches. And Paul is gathering the pastors of each of these home churches to deliver this final farewell. In Acts 20, verse 17, we can read about that. For Miletus, he sent a message to Ephesus, asking the elders of the church to meet him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house. There that is, yeah? As I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. And now, as a captive to the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. How faithful is Paul? Verse 25, and now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock. Remember, he's talking to the elders here. Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. Verse 36, when he had finished speaking, he knelt down with them and prayed. There was much weeping among them. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving especially because of what he had said, that they would not see him again. 
Then they brought him to the ship. Can you imagine this moment? I mean, I can, I've got it vivid. Like, I don't even have a very good, like, imagination, but I, I've got this vivid in my mind. The mutual love, the compassion, the devotion that these people had for one another. At this time, this church in Ephesus has come a long way. It's been five years, a long way towards vibrancy and health, mutuality, having been shepherded by the likes of Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, pa- Apollos, and Timothy, Paul's true son in the faith. It's an important early Christian community, to say the least. Eventually, it would even become the church to care for Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her final years. As well as the home of the apostle John, who uh, in his later years would write fondly of these people. In 1 John, he said, my dear children, love one another. But before Timothy, before Mary, before John, Paul while imprisoned in Rome in the year 62, about 10 years after his original visit to the city, penned the letter that we call today the book of Ephesians, 10 years later. And it is in this particular letter uh, to this particular church that we're going to spend the next six to seven weeks kind of unpacking and exploring, seeing it, uh, trying to see it fresh, seeing what maybe God has to say to us today in these pages just 1,952 years later, amen? All right, so I mentioned last week how we often have to treat Paul's letters like we're receiving one end of a phone conversation to kind of figure out what's going on on the other side of that conversation, like what are the questions being asked, what are the issues being raised? Uh, But that's not so much the case with this letter to the Ephesians. It doesn't really appear to be written to, in response to any particular question or issue. Uh, But is instead an encouragement toward a particular view of salvation and to live according to the way of Jesus as a devoted community. The diversity in this town, remember this is Ephesus, this is an economic hub. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is in this place. It's big and diverse. This diversity that would have made up this church would have been a beautiful picture of the gospel's significance in tearing down the walls that separate us ethnically, racially, socioeconomically. It's an admonition toward unity in the ways, uh, in spite of the ways that we are different. And this, I believe, is a word the church needs now as much as it ever has. I feel like it's the only thing I ever preach, actually. God loves you, so quit being a jerk. (laughs) Ephesians is about ecclesiology. I know that's a fancy word. It just means how we do church. (laughs) What should the church look like? What? Who are we? Right? If there's any question this letter is in response to, it's simply this. But how do we, the church, live right here, right now? Unlike most of Paul's letters, which begin with a prayer of thanksgiving before he jumps into railing about things that he's responding to, Paul begins Ephesians with the longest sentence in the Bible. It's hard to see it in our English translations because it breaks it up because it's really hard to follow. (laughs) But the original Greek sentence had 202 words. Can you imagine being the person that was chosen to stand up and read this in front of everyone and be like, 
but yeah, in the original, this is one just a long sentence. It's a doxology, in fact. It's a praise. The only English translation that I've seen uh, maintain this one sentence integrity is David Bentley Hart's uh, translation of the New Testament. And I was going to read it for you this morning, but decided not to. Uh, what, you want me to? Yes. All right, I'll read it. Hang on. <laughs> All right, here it goes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, who in the anointed has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the cosmos, that we might be holy and immaculate before him in love, marking us out in advance for filial adoption to himself through Jesus, the anointed, according to his will's delight, for the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he graced us in the beloved one, in whom, by whose blood, we have the fee for liberation, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has caused to abound for us in all wisdom and understanding making known to us the mystery of his will, which was his purpose in him, for a husbandry of the season's fullness, to recapitulate all things in the anointed, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth, in him in whom we too received our lot, being marked out in advance according to the purpose of the one who enacts all things in accord with the counsel of his will, so that we, who first hoped in the anointed, might be for the praise of his glory, in whom you too, hearing the word of the truth, the good tidings of your salvation, and having faith in him, we're sealed with the spirit of the promise, the Holy One, who is an earnest of our inheritance until the liberation fee is paid for what has been procured for the praise of his glory. Whoa. What was that, like 10 breaths for one sentence? So, I don't know how to diagram a sentence, but if any of you know how to do that, I would love for someone to take a stab at diagramming this sentence. It's just crazy to me. Uh... But when we read it this way, it's pretty hard to follow. But I think it also drives uh, home something I think Paul is doing intentionally, piling it on. It's like, and this, and this, and this, and, 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 right? But seeing this as one sentence allows us to see, as with any single sentence, that there is one main subject and one main verb which makes sense of all the rest of this sentence. That subject is God the Father. It's not us. It's God the Father. And the verb chose us. God the Father chose us. Everything else is like ramifications. Regardless of what angle you come at this from, whether it's like a reformed tradition or more open and relational thinking, the truth of the matter is that if you are in Christ, you are chosen in Christ. This is a corporate election. It's not that you individually were chosen or predestined to be in Christ, but that all who are in Christ are chosen. Does that make sense? In Christ, you are chosen in Christ. It's a weird phrase. This idea that, that in Christ you are chosen in Christ, this idea comes up frequently in this passage, 11 times by my count. In Christ, in him, in whom, 11 times in just as many verses. Maybe it's an important point, yeah? This identity that we have as chosen is not just an identity through Christ, as is often taught. 
but an identity in Christ. It's not just something that took place in the past, but an ongoing and permanent reality that we are invited into. Amen? In Christ, in Christ, you are chosen in Christ. Christians often speak of salvation as inviting Jesus into your heart, right? You've heard that before, I'm sure. And that kind of language does indeed occur in Paul. Yeah? But in contrast to this invite Jesus into my heart idea, which occurs maybe five times or so, throughout Paul's letters, there are 165 times in which the language is like it is here in Ephesians, that of God inviting us into the triune community. You might say God inviting us into his heart. Man, let that one just kind of wash over you for a second. It's an important corrective, I think, to the hyper-individualistic view of 